the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. And sitting next to me today in the front seat for the second episode in a row is John Dillo. John is a therapist and a life coach who focuses on dealing with anxiety. And we've been talking about how to manage uncertainty so that you always have the fuel that you need to keep pushing that stone up a mountain, even when it seems like every time you get to the top, it rolls right back down. We're going to start by talking a little bit about the tendency to focus on human brokenness and our faults, as opposed to releasing dignity and the power that can have to manage uncertainty and move into change. We're going to shift gears a little bit, going back to the theme of the silent revolution. One of the things that has become discredited And I don't know that I disagree with this being discredited. So there's no judgment in the statement that I just made or am about to make is the concept of sin as a legitimate driver of human behavior. Something that you shared with me during our pre-interview material exchange Mm -hmm. was some thinking around the concept of sin, which really seems to have come into its own during the modernistic phase of our culture, and uncertainty. How do they interplay? 
you you might have to refresh me a bit because I I forgot what I shared. So <laughs> nudge me in a direction, Scott, because I I think I might be going off on a tangent that you may not want me to go down. But I'm not necessarily opposed to you going down a tangent. A tangent, whatever you say, is what I'm interested in hearing. But I think that one of the things that at least superficially seemed to relate to me was the concept of sin as a concept of social control vis-a-vis uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Does okay. that ring any bells with you or, or, or strike any? Yeah, I, uh, I I will dive into my thoughts on that topic and uh, maybe I'll meander into what we had talked about earlier. Cool. Um, so again, I, I come from this, this Christian worldview and, and sin has become, I think, almost a central topic in this world view that I come from. And I think it's really the old story. Mm. I think we're fixated on the brokenness and depravity of man. And, and I don't think we need to deny that, mm-hmm. but I think we need to look beyond that and say, what is the dignity of, of woman, of man? What is the dignity of humanity? And how do we release that? to make a difference in the world? How do we make that the focus in a way that liberates and brings about change? Um, often in my context, you'll have people gather together and they're sharing their sins with one another and confessing and talking about how broken they are. And, and I'm all about talking about our brokenness, but that seems like such a um, smaller part of the story Um as opposed to the greatness that we were meant to be. Mm. And where uncertainty fits in is I, I think it is, it is an uncertainty and hope even um, it is uncomfortable to consider and, and even thought of as arrogant in some, some ways to think I was meant for greatness mm-hmm. and there is a greatness for me to bring to the world um, that faces on uncertainty of, well, what if I'm actually full of shit and I don't know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't want that to happen and I don't want that disappointment. So there's mm. uncertainty there. And can I really hope for something that good or am I going to be disappointed? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where my brain takes me in this point. Yeah. Well, but as, as you touched on something that maybe is worth exploring a little bit more here, because part of what has fed into the silent revolution, which is, again, the declining influence of these religious institutions, is at least arguably a focus on sin, but a very specific focus on sin. I'm a member of the LGBTQA+, whatever it is. I don't even know what my own community is called, <laughs> but whatever. I'll just call it those yeah. people. That I'm, yep. that I'm one of, that I'm one of, right? Yeah. There has been, I think, few people would argue with this, an extreme obsession with the sinfulness of people like me. Meanwhile, being perfectly fine with trashing the entire planet right? or yes. eating animals that have been tortured, right? you know. And so, I think that part of what is I'm curious about is when it comes to this concept of sin. You having a specific religious background that ha- and and that is it, it, that is a member of that faith system that has the concept of sin embedded into it. Yeah. That's what Adam and Eve did. The start of all this yeah. stuff, and yeah. then and then um, and then the reality that um, some of these 
some of what might have been conceived of as sin back when these stories were originally written that Mm -hmm. might have culturally been assumed to have been sins don't stand up to Mm -hmm. a world in which there is a a postmodern world in which there's a lot more shading and nuance. And so I guess part of what I would be curious to know is with out for someone who may be either living in both a secular and um, non, uh, non-secular thought system, mm-hmm. or for someone who exists outside of a non-secular thought system, in other words, is has their thinking rooted in religious traditions, how does one wrap the concept of uh, their mind from a mental health perspective, mm-hmm. from a driving oneself to purpose perspective, with the concept of sin. And mm-hmm. do you believe, by the way, that there is such thing as cultural sin? I would need you to define that for me before I give that answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sins that we don't commit as individuals, but we commit as cultures. Or oh, as a- yeah, a- absolutely. I, I think structural racism is a um, <laughs> horrible example of that, that as a cultural institution we have perpetuated a great injustice in terms of structural racism and we could expand that to a number of different topics so so absolutely there there is cultural sin if we want to label it that way but but your your original question is how how do we um, make sense of sin as 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 a secular and spiritual people, I'm not sure if I yes. caught the exact question. Yes. How do you reconcile those? How do you think that that moves us into a place where we can drive ourselves from an ethical perspective if the sin-based moral systems that we've been operating within historically are, are crumbling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To maintain um, our sanity while doing that, by the way. Yes, that's a nice thing to hold on to. Um, Well, I I will I will say some things that will get me kicked out of the church, but that's fine. Uh, I think we make sin. So I I have to speak from within my worldview, at least initially. I think we make sin far too big of a deal. Um, And I say that because in my frame, Jesus made a big deal of sin, and so it's he he's made the biggest deal of it he can. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to anymore. Mm-hmm. So if someone walks into my faith community and they are a sinner in whatever fashion we want to label that, whether they're destroying the environment or something else, whatever we define that as, that's not something I'm fixated on. Mm-hmm. More I'm fixated on, um, one, the common humanity that we have as we're grappling with these existential questions and trying to come up with the best answers we know how. And so there's a fellowship with them as I can honestly say, hey, you're trying to figure this out just like I am. So there's a fellowship and a humility where I can accept where they are at, but I don't need to compromise my belief system as well. And that's a, that's a tension that I think in the postmodern era we struggle to allow that um, we couldn't disagree and coexist. Mm. There had to be uniformity. Mm-hmm. Tolerance is a beautiful concept, but I think it it went too far as to mean 
tolerance means acceptance of every single worldview is equally valid. Mm -hmm. And pretty quickly, you and I could come up with some worldviews that we'd say, no, that's morally evil and should be opposed. And so I think we've made much ado about sin, but I think, again, in my worldview, Jesus made the biggest deal of it. It could be made and that's good enough. And I don't think we need to keep fixating on it. So instead I invite people how about you get to know this person who wants to draw forth your dignity, who wants to restore your humanity to the great thing that it was meant to be? I focused a little bit on the concept of sin, A, mm-hmm. because that did seem to me at least superficially to relate to the underlying theme of uncertainty mm-hmm. right? or controlling, quote-unquote, sinful behavior. And yeah. I, I will just, something I didn't say explicitly is that sinful behavior generally, is my understanding, is behavior that is in one way or another antisocial. So it therefore threatens, at least in theory, yeah. the survival of the species. Mm-hmm. So to me, sin, uncertainty, the decline of religious institutions goes as to something you touched on a little bit more, but I'd like for you to explain in a little bit more detail when you say mm-hmm. post modernism has failed. And you just a second ago maybe began to explain why, but talk to me a little bit more about why you think that that's happening. And then what, where do you think that that leads us from a psychological perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So both modernism and postmodernism gave us some sort of an answer to the uncertainty question. Postmodernism made space for the the messy complexity of life. Uh, it didn't leave Scott in the hospital bed with a cheap answer. It said, "All hell could break loose and you could die. This right. sucks." And there's there's something really important in that because you need it. Your partner at the time, it sounds like he was able to come beside you and say, "Brother, this this could be really bad." Yeah. And you you needed someone with you in that reality, not someone denying that reality. Mm-hmm. So postmodernism allows us to deal with some of the messiness where I think postmodernism, one place it starts to break down is it it's not logically consistent at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Things um it becomes logically hard to hold on to there are a thousand gods and only one god at the same time. <laughs> Now, there is a way we can say, well, all those gods collapse into one god. So there's ways we can kind of talk around it. But at some point, you, you run up something, run up against something that is intellectually incompatible. Right. And so I think there's a way where our rational minds start to say, yeah, that, that feels good because it gives me space to believe what I want to believe. But it doesn't feel consistent with kind of logic and reason. So I think that's one place where it falls down. The other is there can be a demand for tolerance that, as I said before, goes beyond kindness and and acceptance of another, and it has to be agreement with the other. Mm. That uh, what I love to see within my faith tradition right now is you and I could sit together and disagree vehemently, and yet still be in friendship and fellowship and in love and care and respect one another in that. And I, I think postmodernism has made that difficult mm. because we need to all agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's some of where postmodernism falls apart. I think the place I'm trying to go, uh, because I'm still trying to figure out how do we answer this question of uncertainty, yeah. is a place where there is courage and humility. That um, 
kind of step back. There was a, a point where part of my career was working in the church. And there was a point of time where I just kind of looked up and said, are we making all of this up? Is this all nonsense? Yeah. Is this all fake? Yeah. Is this all just a story we've concocted? Yeah. And I had this crisis of faith and I get paid to be a religious guy. That's yeah. what I did for a living at one point. Yeah. And so I wondered, how do I make sense of this? And in the face of that uncertainty, as my religious kind of worldview started to unravel in ways, I needed to have the courage to step forward and examine all of the evidence as thoroughly as I could and draw a conclusion while still holding the humility to say that Mm -hmm. I might be out to lunch. And when I die, I might just rot in the ground and that's all there is. Mm -hmm. But that courage and that humility allows me to interact with someone who has a completely different worldview and do so with a sense of curiosity of how did you find the courage to answer your question in this way? And let me understand that more because we're together trying to answer those existential uncertainties the best we can. So that's, I'm trying to find a path between the modernist certainty and the postmodernist uncertainty and mystery and courage and humility seem to be one of the places to bring that together. Talk to us a little bit about your own personal journey that led you to have an interest in this particular topic, as well as the desire to, and you've touched on this latter point a little bit, but if you mm-hmm. want to explain a little bit further, or, or as you see fit, uh, to look into this particular um, pathway uh, and provide yourself as a missionary or an evangelist yeah. to help mm-hmm. people that might similarly be struggling to find that that yeah. th- that way. Mm-hmm. Well, in in my own um, uh, this, I, I told you in the pre-show, Scott. I have to be careful talking about this. The last six years of my life, I've gone through an extremely messy and conflictual divorce. Um, I have five kids from that marriage, and. And if you've been through one of those processes, you know how um, emotionally and relationally devastating it can be. Mm-hmm. And it's sent me to a place where I, I've had to decide how will I grapple with the suffering that is in front of me? And that's beneath most uncertainty is that fear of suffering. Mm. And so in my personal life over the last six years, I've had to come to some conclusions of how will I relate to suffering? So I've got a lot of weird habits right now. The decision I made is when suffering wells up within me, I'm not going to shut it down. I'm going to find ways to lean into it. I'm not a, I'm not a masochist, so I don't try to draw it out of me, but if it's there, I lean in. And so I have a, a number of different triggers that can bring the sorrow out when it's necessary. What do you mean by leaning into suffering? What does that look like for yeah. someone who might be thinking, wait, I've never leaned into suffering. That's maybe something I want to hear more about without yeah. being right. Especially since you explicitly said you're not doing yeah. it as a masochist. Yeah. I, again, I, I think some of my kind of current worldview is to say some of my goal is to live as humanly as possible. Mm. Part of that humanity, humanity means I will suffer. It is a given. I will die someday. I will get sick someday. So suffering is a given. The way we choose to relate to suffering 
can be so maladaptive because people will, you know, you get drunk, you look at pornography, you, you become a workaholic. There are dozens of ways we try to modulate or minimize our suffering that are not constructive. What I have found, um, I, I'm probably more influenced by the Stoics at this point, mm-hmm. but, but really by the figure of Jesus as well, because he was a character who did not shy away from suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he could have stayed in paradise, but mm-hmm. he chose to come and enter into this screwed up, messy world that we're in mm-hmm. and fully in, participate in the suffering we're, we're in. So what does it mean to lean into suffering? The first is to notice it. There are, there are things in life that just hurt. My divorce has torn my heart apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have, I've wept more in the last six years than hopefully I ever will again, but it has been rare that a week has gone by that I've not been doubled over in tears. And that has both at times been a spontaneous thing that it just overwhelms me and I can't help it. But uh, I'll, I'll share a brief story. My, my parents would come down every week and I have wonderful parents and they would come down to visit me every weekend that I had my children with me. And the days when I, I would transition my children back, they would break my heart and they were there. My kids were gone. I sat down on the couch and I just said, mom and dad, could you just sit with me? And they both sat beside me while I wept and grieved. And that was a deliberate, I I'm as a counselor, I have to keep pretty well compartmentalized. I can in moments be weeping and then get up and go see a client. I have to be able to do that. So I have the ability to shut all that down, wall it off, put it in a nice little box. But I made a deliberate choice there to say, mom and dad, could you come sit with me in my suffering? Mm-hmm. That's some of a, uh, that gives a picture of what I mean to lean into suffering. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do that. I chose to do that. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the, uh, the secret plague, I think our avoidance of suffering is in part what keeps us so alone. Suffering in other people makes us uncomfortable because we're not comfortable with our own suffering. Mm -hmm. So a friend of ours is suffering and we can tolerate it for a certain time, but then we start to step back because Mm -hmm. their suffering reminds us of our own suffering that we're wanting to avoid. Mm -hmm. So, so I find it very important to lean into the suffering that is there, Mm -hmm. not amplify it, but not minimize it either. Mm -hmm. The areas of suffering that can trigger reaction and how that does impact connection have actually come up on this show before. I'm not sure the order that these episodes will ultimately air in. However, yesterday I taped an interview with a guest by the name of Kashan Parker, who is a grief counselor who focuses on widows and helping them regain a sense of identity. And one of the things that she talked about that was so devastating for widows in particular is that the spouse couples tend to develop relationships with other couples. And people feel discomfort with widows and with the concept of widowhood and with a death. They don't that person, the widow doesn't fit in with their social group anymore. They of course care about her and, or him, and they will 
reach out, but this sense of disconnection and alienation can come utterly overwhelming. And that's just one example of how that discomfort with suffering, again, sort of tying back into your theme, brings out the uncertainty of our own futures at any given moment. And one question then that this inevitably leads to is leaning into suffering may be a way for us to process it. But how do we, as those who are in the orbit of another person's suffering, manage? Yeah. How do we manage it for ourselves, or how are we productively present for them? Well, that's a good question. Maybe both. Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, let me talk about them first, and then we'll talk about ourselves. Um, There's a Jewish tradition, and I may be getting the term wrong, a sitting shiva. Mm-hmm. And and that was this practice when someone died in a family, people from the, the community, from the temple would come and just sit with the family. They weren't there to talk or to fix. They just sat. They were present to the grief. And I think at times, because we are uncomfortable with grief, we feel like when we're in the presence of grief, we need to do something. Mm-hmm. We need to resolve it. We need to fix it. We yeah. need to comfort it. We need to give an answer. But often the most profound thing we can do is just sit beside a man or woman who's in their grief. Mm. Um, some of my background and training is in uh, existential um, counseling. Uh, there's an existential therapist, Yur, um, Irvin Yalom, who we're, that was part of where our training came from. And he talks about, so he's, he's an atheist and And he says, we're all just floating through life down this river in separate canoes. We can never actually enter into the canoe of another person. The best we can hope for is to come alongside and journey together for a time. Grief is one of those moments where we just need someone to sit with us. Mm -hmm. There will come a time to give answers or to talk or to give perspective. But usually the power we have is in the power of our presence, Mm -hmm. not in our words. How do we deal with the grief that we see in another person that gets into our own personal relationship with suffering? If my personal relationship with suffering is one where I see suffering as the enemy or the thing to avoid, the thing to minimize, then when that person who now embodies suffering comes before me, that's how how I will treat them. Mm -hmm. But if I have a relationship with suffering that is more amicable, or more receptive, and I see suffering as an accepted reality and one that is here to teach me and even give me good things, then I can welcome that person in without having to resist or control or fix. I'm going to switch gears because honestly, I have nothing to say to all that. (laughs) Can I I just share one quick story? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a my one of my mentors who just had profound impact in my life. Um, he was going into his mother's hospital room for the final time. She was passing away, and I said, "Greg, how are you? How are you feeling about this?" And he said, "I don't want to miss a moment of it. I want to fully experience the sadness, the loss, the suffering, the saying goodbye, because death is a part of life." Yeah. And I don't want to deny that. 
And I was just, I was a, you know, 22 year old kid at the time. I was blown away. Wow. That is a profoundly different way to think about suffering than I've ever heard before. And there's something so open about that way of kind of entering into the world. We're no longer living in fear of the bad shit that's going to happen. It's not that we welcome it or try to make it happen, but we accept that it's part of the journey. So, okay, but I'm done. Wow. Uh, that, thank you so much for sharing that. And that is something, look, I, just the other day, I was reading an article on an online Q&A site about people who, it was an interview with a vet. And the vet was saying that, like, what's the worst thing to do to an animal or something like that? And he actually didn't mention abuse or anything like that, although presumably mm-hmm. that's a pretty doggone bad thing. Yeah. But he said the worst thing is that he sees is that so many of, of the pets, humans, bring them in, then leave for yeah. the final passage. And the, yeah. unlike the humans, the pets have no idea what's going on. They've yeah. just been abandoned, and then there's they're put in shots are given to them, and then they start yeah. to fade out. And yeah. one of the things the vet says is is exactly what you're saying. Again, I don't want to necessarily equate the relationship between pets and humans and, and mm-hmm. people and people, although sometimes it can be pretty damn close. Mm-hmm. It's that being there with that with that other being is mm-hmm. is part of the experience that that, into, that pet needs and yeah. also something that we need to be there mm-hmm. as full companions to that pet. He pointed out that the pets are there with us through our suffering. Yeah. Not the least we can be for them. Mm-hmm. We are going to have on the show very soon a woman who calls herself the climate optimist. Mm-hmm. She is a climate change activist who wants to talk about the role of individual choice and feeling and how we can become overwhelmed by the severity of the climate mm-hmm. crisis, um, how we can manage it while acknowledging the extreme nature of it. I asked her to be on the show. This show originally had nothing to do with climate change. I care about it, but for the purposes of the show, I didn't care about it. Yet, it kept coming up again and again and again. There was a period where every guest I was having somehow managed to turn the conversation into one about Climate change. So, as you said, in the spirit of leaning into suffering, my little suffering of having to constantly talk about climate Mm -hmm. change, and that had nothing to do with what I wanted to talk about, I decided that there was a providential hint that was being Mm -hmm. sent in my direction. And when I met this woman, I felt she was the right person. She is the right person. That episode is going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. However, it raises one final issue that I want to talk to you about before Mm -hmm. we move into closing our episode. And that is the relationship between uncertainty and the relationship to how we deal with abundance. Mm -hmm. At least one guest on this show has argued that the climate change issues that we're facing, and yes, I believe they actually exist. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to throw that down right now that this is related to a scarcity mindset, that if everyone is running around saying, I want to take what I can take for myself, then we end up with an extreme depletion of resources. Whereas Mm -hmm. if we had a more sharing and abundant approach, then 
um, we might be less likely to be inclined to just take, take, take and irrespective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 10,000 people are going to drown in Bangladesh, but they're not me. Sort of attitude. And so with all of that as a backdrop, talk to me, if you have anything to say at all, and you may have nothing to say, so I may just say, shut up, Scott. Talk to me about the relationship, if any, between the concept of abundance and the concept of uncertainty, particularly as you philosophically have embraced and are exploring dealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the concept of abundance starts to push my thinking back into that kind of negativity versus positivity mm-hmm. mindset. Um, because we don't believe there's a, an abundance, we're out there taking everything we can as quickly as I can and to hell with the people who are going to drown and die. Mm-hmm. because there isn't abundance, there's scarcity. And so we face uncertainty with that negativity bias that there is scarcity, there is lack, I will be lacking. So I need to take in everything I can now mm-hmm. so as to be safe and secure. And if other people suffer, well, so be it. I think in it, it's a it's an interesting thing. You and I are working together. We're, we're working in similar fields. We're both starting YouTube channels. We're both in yeah. podcast zone, social media. It's a strange place that we are working because I think there is a sense of abundance yes. in this zone. Yes, like, oh, there's billions of people out there who'd want to see a podcast. And so Scott can have his piece of the pie. I could have mine. Yeah. And so in this weird little um, sub-genre that we work in, I've, I've seen people much, um, much more confident to share as opposed to grab for themselves, mm. that there is this belief that, no, there's an abundance out there. We can all have a part of it together. And I think there's something to learn culturally from that, that if we could move away from this scarcity mindset and this kind of negativity bias towards uncertainty and start to shift ourselves to a belief that no, good could happen for all. And, and how do we get there? It's a different question. I, uh, I probably have different economic ideas of how that happens. Um, but I think there is a way for us to be thinking about how do we release abundance to everyone as opposed to taking it for ourselves. John, this has been, as I mentioned at the top of the show, an intense conversation. It's been deeply intellectually engaging. And honestly, with regards to a lot of the concepts and ideas that have come up, we could have sidebars on yeah. them that last for hours. There is a lot that you're putting out in the world that is of quality and that is well worth exploring. You and I discovered each other. through the quality output that you're bringing into the world. Talk to us about how we can find out more about you and where we can help you. Yeah. Probably the the simplest way to find me is at my website. It's John Dillow Counseling. And now that's a John without an H. So just J-O-N Dillow Counseling. And there you'll find links to the various resources I'm, I'm offering to people. I have a currently a free online course on how do you bring down the physical symptoms of anxiety? Because I think that's actually one of the first steps to deal with uncertainty. We got to get our brain in check so that we're rationally present to deal with uncertainty. You'll also find links to another 
a free online course on how do we reshape our stories in a way that moves us into the future more productively and helps us to change in a more durable and and ongoing way. So that's probably the best way to find me is via my website, John Dillo Counseling. And I have to say you're on Instagram. You have excellent content there. What's your Instagram handle? Uh, it's John Dillo Counseling as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Check it out, folks. And um, it has been a genuine pleasure taking a ride with you today, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, for everyone tuning in, if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple or comment on YouTube. And I will see you next time for another ride down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors, luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.